inflation gets worse if you make easy money available while inflation is running. I know that's weird. If you give people more money when there's already too much money running around, inflation gets worse. Okay. We've established that once again. Sometimes. Sometimes. The question is, what do the people do with the money? Right. That's the key. If if the money is going to lower income families, they tend to spend it immediately. Yes. Oddly enough, a great deal of money can go to high income families without increasing inflation because they tend to save it. Or invest it. Correct. Right. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the well up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, or should I say boy and girl, or maybe none of them are listening. Um, this is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Together, we are here to mumble in NADs, confuse and muddle the mind, possibly give clarity on one or two points. That is our chosen quest to to follow that star, no matter how weary, no matter how far. Here we are. Um, we, we've got a question out there that we can get to. Okay. On the, we, need, we need to get to, yeah, let's go to the goal. Um, let's go to the, it's, let's go to the BRICS meeting. Yeah, the BRICS meeting. Um, uh, Inquisitor John, it's taken us the majority of the hour to get to your question, but thank you very much for it anyway. Um, his question is about the August 22nd BRICS meeting. This is not the uh, unofficial band that stands behind all band pictures in music. This is not the brick wall. This We're talking about Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, John says, I've been reading about the Durban Accords in the upcoming August 22nd BRICS meeting. What does the personal wealth coach believe this effort will have on the short and long-term effects of the dollar as the global reserve currency. Uh, short term, absolutely nothing. Uh, and I'm kind of go through, for those of you that don't know what this is, um, way back in the early 2000s, there was a big push in the emerging markets world to recognize a group of countries that were expanding their manufacturing and their agriculture. They were taking essentially completely uneducated people out of agriculture and putting them into manufacturing, educating them and then training them up to do things that we were hiring them to do. Textiles, um, shoes, electronics, a lot, a lot of things. And um, I think it was a Goldman Sachs CEO that first term uh, coined the term brick for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Because as a block, those were the, the fastest emerging countries. Uh, a lot of manufacturing was being sent there. A lot of extra demand uh, was being applied there. So Brazil in that time period since then has increased its grain shipping by over 30 times in the last 20 years. So a 30 time multiplier. Uh, so these were extremely uh, aggressively expanding countries. Very cool. Very awesome for those of us that were looking at it saying, hey, this is going to make our lives better. Over time, they even decided to get together as a group at the governmental level and call themselves the same thing that Wall Street had been calling them. And then they allowed South Africa to join later on. They've made a whole bunch of commitments in their annual meetings. They had a commitment for something like $100 billion being given to the IMF. It never happened. They had a commitment to do a fiber optic cable 
connecting all of their countries because they were concerned about American espionage. The vast majority of the trunk of the internet that crosses the Atlantic and the Pacific was laid by the United States, and it's not even an, a secret. It's not even an open secret. It is just known that the NSA is reading everything that goes through there. So they don't like that. Russia doesn't like it. India doesn't like it. China doesn't. The UK doesn't like it. Um, but it's not something we're going to give up because it's a great, great deal of security. So they agreed to do this major trunk line. And this was back in 2012. It has not been started. No money has been collected from any of them to do it. And this is during a decade in which China has spent hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure expansion across the world. What does that mean about this group? Well, last year, their latest update to this was this concept that they would come up with a group currency for global purchases, that it wouldn't be based on the dollar. They haven't really said what it would be based on except a basket of currencies. Well, here's the issue with that, and this is a big one. In order to have a global reserve currency period, you have to have someone in charge of quality control. Uh, that's what the Federal Reserve does in the United States, is make sure that we're not printing dollars we shouldn't be, that tightens up on when inflation's occurring, when deflation's occurring. They're trying to keep the the dollar at a stable value. Uh, they're not entirely successful at it, but they're doing a, a pretty good job compared to the rest of the world. This is why the dollar's the reserve currency. It's been around a long time and there's a lot of them. Something like 88% of the international transactions are done in dollars. Um, about 56% of the governmental global currency reserves are in dollars. Last year after they voted on having a reserve, this was in Beijing, it was hosted by uh, Xi Jinping, um, only one country ratified that early on and deposited about $100 million into this basket of currencies. That was Russia. Nobody else has put up any money to it yet. And $100 million is, is it, you can't fill a, a pool with a thimble. Um, and that's maybe even a, a, a low-end exaggeration, not a high-end exaggeration. The amount of dollars out there in the global market makes $100 million in rubles look silly. It really, really, really silly. So short-term, there's the only way you can have a currency that is well-maintained is if somebody's in charge of doing it. And that means that these countries would either have to give up using their own currency. And I think Brazil would love that. They would be happy to give up the real. They, they have had troubles throughout their existence with this thing swinging all over the place. You've got great success stories and a lot more disaster stories. So they're very happy to use a global currency. The Russians really want a different currency. They had $330 billion. That's $330 billion with a B that was seized after their invasion of Ukraine. It's frozen. And uh, Elder Baldy was talking about how we could fix the climate if we just got all this frozen currency and left it out in the atmosphere for a while. Uh, I, I think he's brilliant in this. Nobody else that I have heard and even in any of the client si climate science has said anything as uh, brilliant as this. So that cold, hard cash that's frozen from Russia, we should be using that to cool the atmosphere. Yes, and we could use some of it this summer. Yes. Hey, <laughs> to, to put that $100 million that, that is all that's gone towards the new currency that the 
Russians would like to see and the Iranians would like to see and the Brazil the Brazil I mean, president would Iran's like to see. not even in the group, but they would sure like to use it. Um, a tank company, of which there are many on Fort Weechley Fort at Fort Cavazos, um, just a company of tanks commanded by a captain mm-hmm. is worth roughly twice that. Right. So you could use that as the global reserve currency. You could just use that company of tanks. Tanks. Right. Yeah. Just no, just that small group yeah. of tanks. We should be able to that, do a global be, reserve. Your, one. That would be our unit of of yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 So you can see uh, so, it's a bit pre- preposterous. It would basically mean that China would have to give up the yuan and use a basket currency with India. And India would have to give up the rupee. They have both made extensive efforts. Both of those governments in the last decade have made extensive efforts to isolate their currency from the global market. They're not going to give that up. They just are not going to do it. So it leaves it with, it's just not realistic. Um, the European Union is the next, you know, in their Euro bloc countries, is the next greatest reserve out there. It's because they've given up their own currencies to do it. You can't have a reserve currency that nobody actually uses on a personal level to buy stuff with. That's like using Bitcoin as the reserve currency. Do you buy pizza with your Bitcoin? No, because I don't know what I'm going to pay for it because it's fluctuating too much. You have to have people that believe in the power of the currency. That means they have to use it in order to have the currency maintain its value. One of the things that the Chinese would love to see changed is, is get rid of the dollar as a reserve currency because they have to use dollars to buy the raw materials to keep their economy going. Right. And the food to keep their economy going. They are huge importers of food and raw materials into China. Um, and the fact that we can stop the flow of dollars anytime we want to, anywhere in the world, we actually, it's kind of an interesting thing. People buy dollars from the United States, but they don't really own them. We're basically leasing them the dollar. Yeah, that's true. Because we have the ability to stop it from being spent, to make it worthless, which irritates, tremendously irritates a lot of countries. Yeah, Russia is really irritated because they had this idea that they could invade Ukraine and pay for it with dollars. And we said, no, no, you can't. We're not saying that because we're somehow overly prejudiced against some other currency taking over the world currency thing. There's a reason why India and China have worked so hard to keep their currencies from being used in the foreign exchange market. Uh, China is famous for locking up the yuan and not allowing allowing it to be used in in any other market than ones that are regulated by China. Why? Why is that? Well, because when you have a lot of your currency outside of the country, it gives other countries the ability to use that currency in some ways that aren't necessarily good for your country, for our country. Now, in the United States, we have all kinds of checks and balances on that. And that's a, that's a little reference to checks and balances see with money and usually what I did there. Good dad economics joke. Uh, by good dad, it means bad joke. Yes. Um so the checks and balances exist, but the United States is really, you know, it's it's got a lot of money sitting out there that might affect our purchasing power. There's a lot of money being used to buy and sell oil that if it all came back to the United States to buy stuff with, we would get inflation. It's not really happening because people aren't doing that, but it is a, it is a real thing. It's a threat. So when we say we don't think that the BRICS currency is going to be a national reserve currency or the euro is going to be the new national reserve currency, it isn't because we want to defend the dollar's role as the national reserve currency. It, it doesn't 
particularly help us that the dollar is the reserve currency. It does. It is an export from us, and people think it has value, and that keeps it strong for us. But it also has the threat at some point in the future that someone will stop using it and it'll lose value, and then they'll send all the dollars back to the United States to get their their money back or whatever. So, having said that, it'd be great if there were some other currency that popped up. I'm not anti cryptocurrency as a new kind of currency. I'm not anti some kind of multi-governmental approach to this. It's just there haven't been any viable alternatives yet. Uh, and that's that's the bottom line. You have all this hope brought up, you know, Bitcoin was this will be the new international currency. Except you don't know what the value of the Bitcoin is going to be from one moment to the next. The volatility in that thing is so high because people don't use it to buy things with. They use it to buy other cryptocurrency and that's all volatile too. You were going to add something? Well, it's just in order to have a reserve currency, the issuer of that currency must have phenomenal wealth backing it. I right. mean, utterly phenomenal wealth, counted in the trillions of dollars. Um, the countries that the the only country big enough economically to get into that role would be China. There's nobody else. No common combinations of countries don't work. The the euro is not going to work because it isn't issued by a single country. It's not covered. It's not controlled by a single entity, and from time to time it behaves badly. And at some point, as we saw, we've seen times when it looked like the European Union was going to fall apart. So the euro, the first, there's not enough volume of, of the euro to do that. And secondly, the control of it is so weak. So we're left with China. China won't even allow its currency in any significant amounts to leave the country. It purchases uh, from overseas in yuan not our renminbi i think they call it uh, not they, they don't purchase with that they purchase with dollars why do they do that because they, as jake said they don't want their currency outside the country a lot of their currency because uh very few people listening will remember this but back in the 1970s france had assembled a large quantity of dollars and dropped all that money on the market simultaneously, uh, creating a fiscal conflict in the United States. First, they asked for gold in return for their dollars because the Bretton Woods Agreement said that gold was worth $35 an ounce. It really was worth a lot more on the open market. So the, the French said, here we have billions of dollars. We want billions. We want Basically, they wanted all the gold held in all the depositories in the United States. And Richard Nixon said, nope, we're going off the dollar. We're going off the gold standard effective immediately. And it's been a roller coaster ride since then. But in the process, the dollar has become de facto precious metal. It, it, is, it is itself. It is itself valuable, not just as a medium of exchange of value, but in its existence is valuable, largely because we have an independent Federal Reserve who maintains quality control on the dollar. Now, an interesting point, and this is very, very important. If we're having 3% inflation, and we are right now, by holding a dollar a year, you lose 3% of the value of the dollar. Well, where does it go? It goes to the government. Basically, the government is leasing us money. And inflation is the price we pay to use the government's least money. And you think that's bad, that maybe they shouldn't happen. When you use a credit card, it's typically 1.5% somebody is paying every time you use that credit card, which means the prices in stores where they use credit cards are at least 1.5% higher than they would otherwise be. So you're paying for the use of that credit card. Even if you get cash back, even if you don't, if you pay off your balance, you're paying for the use of the credit card. The world is paying for the use of the dollar. 
and that's very good for the United States. Uh, and people resent that, and they say, we would like to have something we don't have to pay for, but even more so, they would like to have something where they can get paid and somebody else doesn't get, doesn't get paid. So the dollar, there's no end in sight of the dollar being the world reserve currency, as long as the Federal Reserve remains independent. Now, if Congress took over the Federal Reserve, all bets are off. Yeah. And they've uh, offered to do that free of charge on many occasions. Uh, many, many congressional representatives and senators have said, hey, we should take over what the Federal Reserve is doing. Um, unfortunately, when government takes over central banks, you get really silly things happening. Like what's happened recently in Turkey? We mentioned this kind of in passing last last hour. Um, when When the pandemic hit, everybody and their cousin – as far as central bankers go, lowered interest rates, just dropped them to the floor and kept them there because nobody was working anywhere. The economy was about to crater and it what it did. There's no comparison in recorded um, in the same, in the way that we record things today. There's just no comparison to any other time in history. We shut down drastically. Now we had big shutdowns in the 1920s, but it wasn't recorded in the same way. And it certainly wasn't organized nationally. It wasn't organized internationally. It was so what we had was very different this time around. Everybody lowered their their interest rates. What does that do? Well, it means that loans are cheaper. It means that uh, if you need help, it doesn't cost a lot of money to get the help when the help is money. Uh, so the cost of getting that money was low. All right, then the economies are booming all over the world as we're coming out of the pandemic. All over the world, there was boom as people were going back to work, as people were going back to manufacturing. As a comparison to where we were, we had just phenomenal growth because before we'd had phenomenal shrinkage. The contraction was massive. So we had this massive growth, people coming back to work, uh, everybody that could be employed being employed. And that led, while we were still having massive supply chain issues where we couldn't get stuff from other places and other places couldn't get stuff from still more other places. So we started to see inflation start to take over across the planet, minus China, who hadn't opened back up yet. Um, and the central banks all said, all right, we lowered interest rates to keep things cheap so that we could get out of that really nasty nasty hole that we fell in called the pandemic but now we need to start raising rates because we've got too much money it's easy to get and it's making prices go up too fast so we start raising rates almost everywhere everybody and their cousins raising rates except turkey or as they prefer to be called turkey which is just a little bit harder to say and it doesn't sound enough different from the bird for them to get any embarrassment relief from it. So we're just going to keep calling it Turkey. Um, just like I don't go into the habit of calling Germany Deutschland, even though they prefer it called that. I'm still going to call it Germany. I'm, I know. Very, very egocentric of me. Um, okay, so come forward. Turkey decides we're not going to raise our rates. We're going to lower our rates because easy money will make our economy flow a lot faster. Everybody can remain employed and we'll grow our way out of inflation. The problem with that is it never works. The more growth you get, the faster the money moves around. And as the money moves around, we call it momentum. It's not really momentum, but it's moving from one bank to another, from one pocket to another. The more it moves around, the more things get more expensive. In the United States, we have this phenomenal amount of cash sitting in the banks. 
and yet our inflation rate is dropping. Why is our inflation rate dropping if we have all this phenomenal amount of money? Well, because we're not spending it. We're holding it in reserve, which is what we're supposed to do. This is a good thing. It, it, when you're holding it in reserve, even if you have a lot of money, prices don't go up. It's the movement of the money that causes the prices to go up. So this is important to recognize. Turkey continued to lower its interest rate. Uh, the uh, Erdogan, the guy in charge over there, got rid of multiple treasury, the equivalent of what we would call a treasury secretary, because they didn't want to do it. They were like, that's really dumb. I went to school and everywhere says any time this has ever been tried in history, it leads to really, really bad inflation. And Erdogan says, not this time. Turkey is different. We are going to grow our way out of inflation by just making money really, really available to everybody. It didn't work. They had something approaching 50%, 5-0% inflation over a, a year and a half period. They've recently started raising their interest rates. Just as a side note, we talked about them doing it at the time and saying it's worth retesting. I mean, it's been re it's been tested a lot of times in history. They've tried this in a lot of places over the years. It never has worked, but it's worth it. it Turkey, as long as you guys are the ones testing it, I don't want to test it out in my country because I'm pretty good idea what the results are going to be. But if you guys want to test it one more time, try it out. Well, they tested it. The results are clear. It's come back. Inflation gets worse if you make easy money available while inflation is running. I know that's weird. If you give people more money when there's already too much money running around, inflation gets worse. Okay, we've established that once again. Sometimes. Sometimes. The question is, what do the people do with the money? Right. That's the key. If, if the money is going to lower income families, they tend to spend it immediately. Yes. Oddly enough, a great deal of money can go to high income families without increasing inflation because they tend to save it. Or invest it. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, and this is when, like when we go back to the big stimulus packages during the Great Recession. I know this is a long time ago. There are people that are nearing voting age that didn't live through this. Do you realize that? I was reading an article and they said a decade ago during the global financial crisis. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're, you're missing things. 2008, that's 15 years ago, folks. It was just the other day. Yeah. Uh, but if you lived through it, it still seems like it wasn't that long ago. During though the Great Recession, George W. Bush uh, sponsored and pushed through Congress. Was, he didn't actually sponsor it. He, he endorsed it. He pushed through Congress a stimulus package it was it, it, it went through uh, a bunch of money flowed out to people checks were written people deposited them and we didn't get runaway inflation um we didn't get deflation either and then obama came he was next in line and he did a stimulus package too uh, that also didn't create runaway inflation it did not allow for deflation most of that money went to people who actually spent it right away. In, in, the, in the global financial crisis, in the Great Recession, we had a very, very large risk of deflation because when people don't pay back their debts, that money just disappears out of the economy. It's the opposite of inflation where you get a bunch of money in the economy that wasn't there before. Well, now we have a bunch of money that was there and now it's gone. That's deflationary. And so these stimulus packages were aimed at the people at the lowest economic spectrum who were the most likely to spend it. And that gets money flowing into the economy again right away. If you give money to people that already have money, they don't tend to spend it much faster than they already did. 
So these are interesting things. And so what you're saying exactly is true. If if they had just gone in Turkey and said, have a bunch of money, rich people, then they wouldn't have had runaway inflation. But they gave it to everybody and they made it easily available to everybody at a time when people already believed that inflation was taking off. If you think things are going to be more expensive in the future and someone gives you more money, you tend to spend it right away because things are going to be more expensive later. And that tends to add to the inflation. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, We are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guessed from the personal wealth coach being our title the personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program it's also the name of an sec registered investment advisory firm all right well does that mean that the sec likes us what would you say to that sir i would say that the sec is a professionally dislikes almost everyone right that is no implication of the sec's approval just because we're registered with them why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also have not ever paid for it so we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are 
uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>